0: And we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. So this is going to be a very fun episode. And, you know, I'm going to give you a little background on how some topics come to the show. Occasionally, I'll read a a news article or I'll read a book or I'll hear a story or producer Sarah will read something and and suggest it. And sometimes, one of those stories will just kind of grab you immediately and just pique your interest. And that is exactly what happened with this one. It is a book called Survival of the Friendliest. It is an argument that... Human beings and and animals, especially dogs and bonobos, were able to evolve the ability to work with each other, to be friendly to each other, to be friendly to other organisms. And that is the key to their success. And this is something that is shared amongst the most successful species on the planet. Now, not all, because a previous episode we talked about sharks, and sharks are extremely successful, and I would argue they are the least friendly animal on the planet. Uh, I dare you to argue with me on that one. But I think this, this was just a very intriguing argument, and I, I was very excited to get into this. This was a book written by Dr. Brian Hare and his, with his wife, Vanessa Woods. They are experts in bonobos and dogs, and uh, they put this thing together. And let's just get right. I just want to dive right into this. All right, so do you like Dr. Hare, which I think is a really funny name, by the way? Do you like Brian? Do you like BH? What do you like? Whatever. You don't care? Whatever. You don't care? I don't care. Whatever Whatever's fun. Well, whatever you are, whatever you like to be called, you are the author of Survival of the Friendliest, Understanding Our Origins, and Rediscovering Our Common Humanity, along with your fellow author... And fellow researcher and wife, am I allowed to? Am I allowed to say that? Wife, she's Vanessa my Woods. wifey. Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> Two questions that come right off the bat: How was that process writing with you? Is that all right? Is that work? You guys uh,
1: yeah, straight to the nub of it, huh? Right. The, yeah. Uh, let's get into it. Yeah, it, it was a marriage. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I like to say that if you enjoy the book uh, or the previous book we wrote together, it's despite me. Uh, <laughs> My wife is really good at taking broccoli and turning it into ice cream. And yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm sort of the boring science in the partnership. Sure. And she is the one who's like going to make it awesome uh, and fun and, and relatable and exciting. But just like anytime you have science journalism and science, there's some conflict there between uh, what's accurate and correct and what is interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. You, you know, I love that you mentioned that because I battle with that all the time. So I have another podcast where it's called F triple GBT. shameless plug for myself, which is ridiculous. But but we take, (laughs) we take pop culture science and we kind of explain it in real life and how to make it in real life. And what you learn really quickly is there's science, which is interesting to me. And then there's science that's interesting to everyone else. And sometimes they don't uh, converge very easily. (laughs) So I know what you mean.
1: Well, I, have just recently become a, I'm, I'm sort of a late adopter. I'm an X general guy. Like email was amazing to me. Mm -hmm. So like last to get the iPhone and like, you know, I joined Twitter later than anybody, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And so I've just discovered podcasts. I know it's a little embarrassing. And so one of the things I've noticed as I looked at, uh, you know, when you're searching for a podcast, uh, the science podcasts are not on the front page. Uh, They, you know, and and I think that's normal. I mean, you know, that's just the normal way. And so uh, as cool and amazing as science is, it's hard to make it relatable and interesting to most people. And so uh, that's one of the big challenges is when you take really complicated ideas that are truly by their nature complicated. And and then you have to make them relatable and digestible. And there's going to be tension there. And uh, there was a lot of... (laughs) Yelling and screaming in his house. As a result, no, <laughs> oh, that's great. I,
0: I don't know what you were told this interview was going to be, but it's an ambush personal kind of
1: dive into your life. I don't know. It's not it has nothing to do with the book itself. Well, well, but, well, Vanessa, uh, you know, did not tell me, and I'm sure that she was excited about the ambush part.
0: Here's another thing that I love about books: is I love "Survival of the Friendliest." All sci- Yeah, I do a lot of science interviews, and and, and we. There, I love some of the book titles. "Survival of the Friendliest" is one of my favorites, easily a top three. I love that. Uh, but it's so funny because every book has a snappy first part, and then a colon, and then a long part that's usually more what the book is. <laughs> yeah. Is that? Does yeah. your publisher like ask for that, or what? What goes on there?
1: Uh, it's interesting. The you know um, in the books I've written, uh, you know, I think the publishers really care a lot about uh, the title and the subtitle and uh they you you kind of have veto power kind of okay um but uh i think on the subtitle for this one our editor really worked hard and in the end we really liked it but you should have seen some of the other ones oh there were some real monstrosities that yeah. were gonna uh be on the front cover some produced by me <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah. but I, I in the end i like what we did but but it is true because survival of friendliness is is intuitive and catchy and then you got to read this mouthful below it but but uh um, I think Survival of the Friendliest inspires the what? What is the message? Which is that you know we're gonna try to understand where we come from, and then that's gonna tell us how we can celebrate and have a friendlier future. Uh, uh, celebrate humanity, have a friendlier future. Yeah, no, it works. I- I've just always been wondering like
0: how that how the titles work. And you seem nice enough. You seem friendly enough to answer that question for yeah. me. So
1: yeah, well. we're we we had an original title, and it took us forever to write this book. And when we originally proposed it, it was domesticated minds.
0: That's not and,
1: bad. Yeah, and so it was like you know we're going to study minds that have been domesticated. Um, and surprising, you're one of them. You know, and that that might be fun for people. Um, and then as as things got went along, we realized, wait a second, this book's about something even bigger than that, which is there's this misunderstanding of evolution that it somehow justifies, uh, you know, seeing people as inferior or superior and that that somehow um allows you to value people more or less and that's just there's nothing in evolutionary theory about that uh yeah but that's how survival of the fittest is usually misconstrued and so we realized we needed to push back on that yeah
0: i I think that's great and also the domesticated mind kind of preempts what is in my opinion as far as catchy swerves go in scientific books (laughs) i mean that's you're kind of you kind of preempt the swerve that you have and we'll talk about that because i like where you where we get to in the book is really fun but let's let's start at the beginning if we can let's just talk just very quickly about what you do at duke uh
1: what you do there and and we'll start there and we'll kind of work our way in well, I, I get to be a professor there. It's pretty fun. Uh, and I do research. I teach. Uh, I have to, I'm like an entrepreneur. You have to raise money to fund your research. And I have students that work with me. And so everything we do is, uh, you know, the result of students working hard. Uh, and, but, but ultimately, the question I'm interested in and in the work we uh, look at is, you know, what is it that makes us human? Uh, how did we get that way? And then can we use that knowledge in the service of society? Can we solve some problems when we learn things about uh, where we come from and, and why we think the way we do? Um, and so I work with animals. And the reason I work with animals is the underlying assumption of everything we do is that if you want to know what it is to be human, it might be helpful to first know what it is to be not human. Um, because a lot of our ideas about, oh, we're special because of this or that end up being wrong. That, you know, a lot of animals are like, no, we do that too. You're not special for that. And so if you really want to see what it is that makes us human, you've got to ask animals a lot of questions about it. And I think it's helped us reveal a lot about ourselves.
0: And and specifically, you work at the Canine Cognition Center
1: there. You're the co-director of
0: that, which I love that. And you also have a website called dognition.com, which, if I understand it correctly, you basically have uh, different games, uh, different cognition games, games to kind of test an animal's ability to play, what they know, what they don't know, personality types. You know, kind of like a like a psychological profile of
1: your dog is that pretty close perfect you nailed it yeah uh, so one yeah so one of the animals that ends up being really helpful to understand ourselves are dogs and it's, it's counterintuitive and in fact it was a bit of a surprise anyway that that happened and so we focus a lot of time uh, working with dogs and trying to learn more about dog psychology because we think they can teach us a lot about ourselves. But in doing that, we've learned a lot about dogs because dogs have jobs. Right. And we want, and we want to, just like we want to apply what we learned to have a better you know, future for humans, same for dogs. They work hard and we'd like to help figure out how to help them do those jobs.
0: Well, what I think you should figure out how to do is to help students and people design research around being able to play with dogs all, all day, which I think you've kind of <laughs> uh, you've succeeded at life. I think when you've kind of done that, and you're you're leading the way.
1: Yeah. Well, the the latest uh, you know uh, version of all of this is we have the Duke Puppy Kindergarten, which is really the <laughs> dog research on steroids. So last semester we had our first full bore uh, class of seven. Puppies, service dog puppies that students raised and then we were working with. So it's, it's a horrible job. It's oh, tough. Somebody's got to do it. I don't know how you do Somebody's it. Somebody's got to, we got to raise puppies. We got to learn how to raise them,
0: you know, better. Right. I don't know. I don't know how you get through the day, Brian. I don't know how. Uh, <laughs> so your expertise, obviously, is in, uh, you, you work with dogs, and you, we're going to get to a great story in a second, but also primates, bonobos, and chimpanzees. Now, I have to say, I am embarrassed to admit this to you, but I'd never heard of bonobos until reading this book. I was shocked at two things. Number one, that they like chimpanzees share 98% of our DNA. So how could I have not heard of them? And also how actually more like us bonobos are or in some ways, I guess, you know, we you know when you when you have a thought in your head and there's like the devil on one shoulder and there's like the angel on the other. I feel like chimpanzees are actually the devil and bonobos are the angel in a way uh, because chimpanzees are incredibly aggressive. And in a lot of ways, they kind of appeal to our darker senses and bonobos appeal to our lighter senses. And I like what you did in the book to I don't know if you did this consciously or not, but that's kind of how I saw it is you're looking at what can we be? and what we kind of are or what we could be, and I, I really like that. So how did you get into primates
1: uh, as far as, um, you know, as a study? Well, uh, chimpanzees and bonobos are, like you said, our two closest living relatives, and we share uh, almost 99% of our genome with them. I, one day, bonobos and chimpanzees woke up in the mid-'80s to learn the latest science that they are actually more closely related to us, humans, than they are to gorillas – so it must have been horrible for them yeah. to learn. <laughs> right. uh, and, and they're like, we're we're big black and hairy like they are. How do right. we be more like the humans? Right. This is terrible. <laughs> right. uh, so, but actually, they're more like us than they are gorillas uh, genetically. And then bonobos and chimps, uh, they are like having two first cousins. So uh, it's like. Uh, you know, if you have a girl and a boy cousin, they're equally related to you, but they're different from each other. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and so that's, that's, uh, our relationship with them. And that relationship helps us to test a lot of ideas that we were taught, that we sort of, uh, were anticipating earlier in the conversation, talking about trying to figure out what it is to be human, mm-hmm. because, uh, all sorts of big ideas about what makes humans the way that they are, uh, get proved wrong because, Bonobos and chimpanzees are like, no, we do that too. So sorry. Right. No, you share that with us. Right. <laughs> uh, and so and yeah. so that's really the motivation is um, uh, you know they have brains a third the size of ours, but they do so many things that we do. So it's a it's a really challenge for a lot of ideas. There was just one today on Twitter where somebody was saying, "Oh, we've discovered this unique way that humans encode geometric shapes." And I like open the paper. I'm like, "Oh, they must have tested bonobos and chimpanzees to know this." No, they've just looked at a bunch of humans. It's like, how could you know that's unique? You can't, right? Well, and what I
0: love that I was just reading an article. I'm going to put it up on the website. Uh, there was an article basically showing how in mammalian brains you know be it a, a, a mouse or a whale the neural connections the speed and the efficiency at which the brain works is the same so it doesn't matter mm-hmm. the size of the brain but the the speed of the connections are all the same so all of the, at least in the, in, in the world of mammals all the brains are essentially from a structural standpoint the same um and and, and which kind of goes to what you're saying but if we're going to talk about survival of the friendliest I think we kind of have to start at survival of the fittest. And I think that this is misinterpreted it a lot. And I think it's a semantic error on the word fittest. I've always interpreted it as the species that is most fit to survive in its environment, which I believe is the true definition of survival of the fittest. But people tend to think, especially given more advanced, along at least from... From a, from a taxonomy standpoint, the more, uh, more further along, evolutionarily speaking, the more dominant, aggressive animals are essentially the ones who are in charge. So let's talk about that. Kind of where, did you, where do you see that as your starting point so that we can kind of get to the friendliest?
1: Sure. The, uh, so I think that survival of the fittest is um, misunderstood to mean, just like what you said, that sort of the big mean alpha individuals are the ones that are somehow superior and that others are inferior and somehow there's a value to being alpha and big and strong. You're better. And so you deserve more resources. You deserve more of everything because obviously you're better. And biology proves that if I'm big and mean and tough, I'm better and I deserve more stuff. Well, not even deserve, Brian, but you can just
0: take it if you're the biggest wolf yeah. or the biggest gorilla. You just take it. You don't have to deserve it or earn it.
1: Well, you know, and, and and in fact, you're morally obligated because you know you <laughs> right. should you're you should uh, you know only the best should win. Right. So uh, really, truly, uh, it is understood that way by many. And fit, fitness, and fittest, it really, literally, just re- in biology refers to how many offspring you leave. Uh-huh. Um. It's, it's how successful you are at reproducing. So uh, survival of the fittest just means survival of those that leave offspring. That's it. That's all it means. There's, there's nothing else. And there's nothing about progress or morals or you know, superior or inferior uh, humans or individuals. But it's, it's really laden with a lot of that. I don't think it's just a semantic error, by the way. Hmm. Um, I, I think that uh, there is um, psychology about group hierarchy uh, that humans have evolved universally to express, and individuals vary in how much they sort of gravitate towards that. But I think it naturally resonates with with uh, an intuition about the fact that there are different higher, there are different types of groups of of humans, and that somehow uh, some are better than others, and that. The groups that are better deserve more. And if you see the world that way, then when you hear survival of the fittest, you're like, oh, yeah, I know what that means. That's what I already believe. So I, I think there's an, um, you know, it's not just that people have misunderstood or that they're incurious. I think it actually fits uh, on a, a psychological intuition that many people have that I, I,
0: That does make a lot of sense, and i 'd also think you know, just from a strictly like a, a United States standpoint in the United States specifically and that 's where I grew up, and that 's where I know, we have that mentality, not so you know obviously there 's a lot of racism and in, 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 in as far as racism and superiority go in the mindset of people which is what you 're talking about, but also just in let 's say a corporate structure you know some it 's usually the most aggressive person in the room or the loudest voice they usually win. And so I think that that kind of helps with that perspective, uh, at least in the United States. I, I don't know. I don't know where you feel about that, but that's kind of where mindset, I think it is.
1: Yeah, I know there's all sorts of places, cultural places where that uh... – you know, belief or psychology plays out and it could be, you know, I've, I've started a company before I've been in a company. I understand what you're talking about. Hierarchical. It could be in medicine, Mm -hmm. um, you know, doctors versus nurses. Uh, it can be religious groups. It can be race. It can be, you know, economic status. I mean, that's the unbelievable thing is that I think universally uh, humans have the ability to see groups as either higher or lower or superior or inferior. Um, some people do it more than others, but, Um, What really seems to be constructed, what is really heavily environmentally influenced is what groups we value and how we construct those groups. Um, And so... Uh, that seems to really uh, differ a lot between different cultures.
0: Yeah, I think so. And, and what I love about in the first part of the book, you talk about how being the alpha male, this aggressive stance is actually a disadvantage because you have social stresses it's, that saps your energy, weakened immune system. You know, being the alpha male, you always have a target on your back. There's always another male trying to fight you for that position. And eventually you're going to lose. I mean, it's, it's not an environment you want to be in. And this is kind of what the crux of what you're talking about is the cooperation is so powerful. And if we look to nature, you've got mutualism. You've got several different kind of symbiotic relationships in nature, but mutualism is the is where both benefit, and that's probably the, the best example of this. Ant social structures are large. I did a whole episode on ants. I love ants. Uh, I'm having a problem with ants in my apartment right now, so they're not on the top of my list. I'm trying to be as friendly as possible, but I, I, they operate almost like an entire brain. And cooperation has led to the success of our species. This, this is, I think, kind of what I loved about your book. Uh, before we go any further, as we get into the friendliness part of this, one of the things I had a little trouble understanding from a universal standpoint is what does friendly mean? Like when you say that scientifically, what does that mean? Because I don't know that I would define most human beings as friendly friendly. Although later in your book, you talk about in groups versus out groups. I don't want to get too advanced in that because that part I understand, but how would you define it from a universal standpoint among species?
1: Sure. So, uh, identifying friendliness in animals, uh, I'm talking about, or even, um, organisms that aren't animals, um, anything where you are attracted to and you want to be close to, and you want to interact with another, uh, individual or entity, uh, that's a type of friendliness uh, and, and, and friendliness can include that and it can go all the way to uh, I wanna do something that will help me and you, or it could be I wanna do something that helps me and it costs me something. That would be sort of the uh, you know most extreme case of friendliness. Um, but friendliness can be as simple as I just wanna be near you um, because being interested and attracted to being close to someone then sets up the possibility for all sorts of interactions that were not possible before. And I think, the, I think if I was going to summarize, the main thing I would love for people to take away from the interview and the book is that friendliness wins. It is life's most successful strategy. Uh, and this misconstrual of survival of the fittest has people confused. It really is the case that if you look at life and the most successful organisms, some of which you um, were talking about, like ants, for instance, um, or even flowering plants, mm-hmm. uh, there's all sorts of examples where the big shifts in nature are where there's a new type of friendliness that leads to a new form of cooperation. And that set of organisms or that organism flourishes and outcompetes every everything else. Um, so friendliness is the winning strategy in nature. And it's partly because if you're in a, a, a place where you have to have sort of zero sum competition where either I win or you lose, uh, and you've got to have an alpha, et cetera, it's just what you said. It's so costly. You're not going to stay at the top for long uh and uh ultimately if you were in another system where friendliness was um favored everyone would benefit much more
0: i no i think that that's that is the the key to the book now i want to say in a lot of ways at least this is maybe this is just my human centered social structure but when i think of friendliness friendliness i think of people going out of their way to be nice to people and maybe not necessarily for their own gain but i think across animal species being nice, you know, we'll say nice, friendly. These are very human words. But <laughs> being, being nice and friendly to other organisms allows you – it's – I do this and I will get something. Every species who is friendly does get something in return, and I think that that's the strategy. I think there are. I would imagine, and I'm not a biologist uh, by training. I just just one by pretend. I, I don't know a lot of species that do something nice for another species and don't get something in return, like the flowers that you mentioned. Bees get pollen, and the flower gets pollinated. You know, I mean, it gets to you know be genetically diverse. So there is. So I think that that's important to, to kind of keep in mind as we go forward. Um, but one of the first things you talk about, which I think is great, and I didn't I didn't understand how important this was until I read it in your book. But pointing. The idea of this theory of mind, how even as babies we point, and that's the first thing that we do, and I don't think that it really made sense to me how important that was as an act of communication and cooperation, until you talk about how you did studies with chimpanzees and they had no idea what pointing meant. Uh, Tell me a little bit about this, because this is crazy to me.
1: Yeah. So um, when I was an undergraduate, I was 19 years old. I was working with Mike Tomasello, a very famous uh, psychologist who studied how children learn to be adults, basically, uh, acquire language, uh, start participating in culture. One of the things that had been um, discovered was that when children at nine to 12 months of age begin to understand that when you point or gesture, that you are uh, trying to tell them what you want or that you know something that they may not know. Uh, and when they start to understand that or when they start to do it themselves, it's their first window into the minds of other people. Mm. It's their first uh, step into a much more complicated social world that we all participate in all the time and don't even think about. Uh, we constantly are thinking about what other people are thinking. Right. Sometimes too much. <laughs> well, it's what allows yeah. us to communicate, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so I've just, I have to imagine as I'm trying to tell you what, you know, describe this, I have to imagine what it'd be like to not know what I'm about to say. <laughs>
0: That's meta, man. That's meta.
1: It's very meta, yeah. yeah. And so um, great communicators uh, are best at that. So what was discovered was that kids, this is a a really pivotal moment in, in the development of children that allows them to acquire language, participate in culture, this first window into others' minds, and that chimpanzees were really struggling at these same things, as smart as chimpanzees are, and they can run circles around a dog or any other animal you might be familiar with in terms of their intelligence that you might you know uh think about but when it came to this very simple thing of just i'm trying to help you i'm going to tell you where something is with this movement mm-hmm. of my arm mm-hmm. really like, i have no idea what you're talking about yeah. and they and and they can learn it slowly yeah but if you slightly change the way you communicate with them let's say you just look to where something is that you're trying to help them find they, they have no clue that you're trying to help them that, I
0: mean, that that was crazy to me because the next step in that, so first of all, I had a hard time really, I had a hard time accepting that. I'm not going to lie to you, Brian, <laughs> I had a hard time accepting that. <laughs> and so once I finally did, there's this, you talk about your dog Oreo and how he, so let me take a step back. So before that, you were talking with a professor who said that that it's a higher, only humans or, or only primates have this ability to cooperate to cooperate with gestures or, or anything like that. And and by pointing they don't they know what you're talking about. And you said, Well, I think my dog does the same thing. I think I can communicate with my dog with pointing. And that was like for me, that seems I, I didn't understand why anyone would resist anyone who's had a dog, no I I didn't understand why you got scientific <laughs> resistance from that. So tell me a little bit about that and then how your dog kind of saved the day and, you know, may change mankind.
1: <laughs> so my so my childhood dog, his name was Oreo and I mean, he was just a regular Labrador retriever. He was my best friend growing up and play fetch with him, you know, throw the ball and he'd run off and go get it. Sometimes he couldn't find it. And so you would gesture in the direction where it was and he'd run off and go orbit and look for it. I, I grew up with that. Just like many people who have dogs have seen a million times. Yeah. So when I said to my, you know, my advisor, I think my dog does that. And he was arguing that only kids read gestures mm-hmm. and that this was a fundamentally different, unique thing about humans. Um, So when I said that, that was kind of like, he was like, what are you talking about? Um, And so uh, 20 years of research later, we know dogs uh, are very much like human children. They understand our gestures a lot like human children do at nine to 12 months of age. It's not like some simple trained trick. They really have a deeper understanding of what it is you're trying to communicate to them. Um, So uh, I got interviewed just like you're asking a lot of people when this first came out, when we first discovered this, they said, well, what, what? what can you tell people at home? What is it? What are they learn that they didn't know before? And I said, nothing. Right. Everybody knew this was what dogs could do. I think science uh, is catching up here to what we've all experienced.
0: Yeah. That, that's kind of what's weird to me is there's so much money that gets put into a lot of these experiments that seem to prove common sense. Yeah. I know you have to do it. I understand the scientific formula, but it's, it's like, come on, guys! Really, that you don't know that a dog? Knows yeah. what You're saying
1: it does. It, it, it does seem counterintuitive, but I mean, the I guess the good thing about science is once it's registered as this common sense thing, isn't common sense anymore. It's a fact. Right. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah. and I can and I can tell you why it's a fact, and here's the evidence.
0: Yeah. You know, and I think that that's right. And I think what you're saying is essentially once you prove it, then you can you can cite it, and then it becomes you know uh, in the lexicon of information for <laughs> for for communication now dogs do this Uh, because you know you talked about kind of what your lead to is how did dogs become domesticated what traits did they get what makes them how did that lead to their survival and i was reading this article a while ago that talks about how dogs are uniquely they've they've evolved with us for so long that they can read our facial structures. They can read our facial gestures and, 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 and even communication, them learning how to follow and cooperate with us is what has led to them being so important and so ingrained with us and allowed them to survive by that makes them more friendly if they can read us if they know what we're saying and doing and they can anticipate what we're going to do or say. That makes them that makes them better evolved and fit to, you know to, to be with us. So l- let's talk about how uh, how did you ca- so I want get, to kind of get to that domestication process where you talk about how wolves. Kind of the self domestication thing that, that you talk about, I think, is really important because obviously we've bred dogs to be how they are today. But the early, early man, when they were first working with animals, uh, how did that kind of naturally come about?
1: Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, things that people know uh, are not, and are not surprised by about dogs we covered. But that then led to uh, establishing those kinds of facts uh, helped uh, understand some things that are surprising. And uh, one of the things that's surprising is that uh, we did not uh, domesticate dogs. Uh, we did not start the process of domestication. And that actually the use of uh, our gestures and understanding our faces uh, that happened through a, a natural interaction. Mm, mm. Uh, nature did that. Uh, and so dogs have been built for friendliness with us through a natural process. Uh, so w- one of the things that w- that was discovered once gen- genomic techniques uh, were invented is that dogs actually began evolving from wolves as much as 20,000 years ago. Well, there was no humans relying on ag- agriculture. This is uh, when all humans lived as foragers. Mm-hmm. Well, People who are living as foragers don't wake up in the morning and say, gosh, I wish we could have some wolves stay with our children while we go hunt and gather and we compete against wolves Hmm. for food. Right. Uh, and then when we get back, I'm sure the wolves will be great with our kids, and then we'll we'll do this for many generations, and then we're going to create dogs. Right, right. right. Um, <laughs> so that seems unlikely that that's how we ended up with dogs uh, evolving 20,000 years ago. So what we think instead is that the friendliest wolves that were attracted to human settlements as we started to be uh, more successful and create more debris, garbage, uh, and other things that they could take advantage. Of, really, at uh, you know. Uh, they were able to reproduce more offspring as a result and they succeeded more than wolves that were directly competing with us as predators Um, and that's really what launched the whole thing and we know from experiments that when you select animals to be friendly That not only does it make them friendlier after you select them for many generations, but it actually changes their morphology, uh, sorry, their bodies, their brains, their minds in ways that we would recognize as sort of domesticated features. So uh, animals that are selected to be friendly. So for instance, there's foxes that have been selected to be friendlier. They have curlier tails and floppy ears uh, as a result of selection for friendliness. Um, So Uh, we think the same process happened, but nature did that where wolves that were able to approach and be attracted to us were at an advantage. Um, And so the, we did, we obviously select dogs now uh, and we control who they reproduce with or whether they can reproduce. Um, But that actually really began in earnest in Western culture about 200 years ago. Uh, But dogs are 20,000 years old, which means that From 20,000 years ago till 200 years ago, dogs were not being uh, bred based on that kind of controlled, intense artificial selection.
0: So that is how they kind of naturally domesticated. But there's a key ingredient that you're missing here, Brian, and that is how did they become and why did they become more attracted to humans? And the answer you discovered is in poop. Is that correct?
1: Yes, I am a big fan of poop uh, energizing dog domestication. <laughs> uh, the, it is a
0: true story. you the world leader in it, I imagine. You pushed that. <laughs> I, I,
1: I am probably the biggest proponent. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. The, uh, not many people have jumped on board with this uh and and you know I don't have like a whole posse of poop, right. uh, poop proposer Yeah, poop posse uh, proposers
0: yeah. I like that yeah
1: poop posse yeah. proposers yeah. for dog domestication and and I have to say I'm a little bit of the turd of the punch bowl <laughs> at uh dog parties yeah. and I start going on about how dogs evolved because they like to eat human poop yeah. but uh it, there is some really nice evidence. Uh, some poor graduate student followed a bunch of, of uh, village dogs around and was able to uh, describe what they ate. And about a quarter of their diet, uh, when they're free ranging, was human feces. And of course, uh, then you have to be curious uh, as a biologist, and you do what biologists do they love to analyze poop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it is the gold. Uh, of biology. And so anyway, they analyze it and uh, it ends up that the human feces that dogs were eating uh, had really a very high nutritional content, a lot of carbohydrates like eating a bowl of pasta or protein contents that were like eating chicken. Wow. Uh, so if you are a wolf and you're directly competing 20,000 years ago with foragers who now have projectile weapons um, and be- they've become super predators and they're wiping out the rest of the predators uh, in Eurasia. And you're like, hey, you know what? I don't know where my food's going to come from to- today, but I know where the humans poop. Right. And it doesn't run away. Uh, it's digested. It's cooked. Uh, I know it'll be there. And it's like an energy bar for wolves. I'm doing this. <laughs> uh, and and so I think they could sneak in at dark and they could uh, find the latrines that were outside the camp. And very safely have a very reliable source of food that led to uh, the selection pressure for friendliness that uh, we think is uh, the key ingredient for kicking off domestication.
0: Well I think I would actually go a step further and say that our extremely inefficient digestive systems apparently are the ones that kicked off this <laughs> There
1: you go. I mean go. I can't
0: believe there's that much good stuff in our in our droppings that they could that could
1: Pretty pathetic.
0: Yeah, I mean it's which leads to our gut
1: bacteria what's going on there? We got I know I was just about to say I'm going to I can't take blame cuz it's not my fault, right. you know? I've learned recently. That's what I'm supposed to say. So I take no guilt, but uh, it's our microbiome for sure. Yeah. Uh, it's just crazy. Uh, so Now, one of the things that
0: I thought was kind of interesting is there, so you talk about the librarian genes, which control the multitasking genes. Uh, this was my favorite part of the book besides, obviously, the stories about Oreo. But th- essentially, this is a gene that controls a bunch of different traits. So then, A lot of different traits change at the same time, and this involves neural crest cells, uh, which and those are related to friendliness. This, I thought, was really cool because as the dogs became more domesticated, this actually affected lots of different things, which includes smaller faces, less aggression, cooperative behavior, smaller teeth. So, I want to talk about that, but I'm guessing that all of the things we talk about curly tails, floppy ears, you know, piebald, uh, c- you know, coloring or whatever, uh, smaller teeth these are all things that look more friendly, you know. So, they are, in a, sens- in a sense, they are related in a weird way, but you wouldn't think that they would be from a scientific standpoint. Tell me a little bit about this.
1: Yeah. So I wouldn't blame anybody to think that uh, if you want to have a a dog, say, with smaller teeth, you breed together dogs with smaller teeth. Or if you want to have a dog that has a shorter muzzle, you breed together two dogs that have a shorter muzzle or curly tails. You breed together two curly curly-tailed dogs. I, I wouldn't blame anybody for imagining that. But uh, what we've seen when you experimentally domesticate animals by selecting friendly animals, the the animals that respond in a most friendly manner to humans, they are attracted to us, they want to interact with us and play with us, you take two of those really friendly individuals and you breed them together, and if you do that for many generations and increasingly breed friendlier and friendlier animals together you have animals that end up having a higher level of these other traits where their teeth are smaller, their faces, uh, their muzzles get shorter, uh, curly tails, floppy ears, the whole, the whole thing uh, increases in frequency, um, and so these library genes and the neural crest in particular uh, help us potentially understand what's happening. How could these things be connected? They weren't selecting for any of those uh, traits that changed in the bodies of these animals. So how in the heck is that happening? And so what we think exactly what you're saying is that um, really it's all about development. It's all about if you want to have a friendlier animal, you have to affect mechanisms that uh, shape friendly behavior. And those tend to be things that happen very, very early in an organism's development. But the the genes and the hormones that control those behaviors tend to also be heavily involved in all sorts of other developmental process like how your body, your face, your what, what coloration you have, uh, your cartilage, how it forms. Um, and so if you want to change the behavior, the, you have to change the genes uh, and, and probably change those librarian genes that have so much power over development. But then by accident, you're changing all these other things, too. Uh, that get uh, taken along. And just by, I mean, it's amazing, uh, you know, by happenstance, many of these things uh, allow you to have features that make you look more uh, infantile or juvenileized. And that also just feeds into that whole cycle of frilliness, because we know that um, adult animals uh, are less aggressive towards uh, juvenile appearing animals. Well, I would say
0: I would say happenstance is probably the correct word, but I, to me, it seems I'm a big believer that nature has a lot of things figured out. And to to say that it's accidental or coincidental, I think this is one of those common sense things that someone will prove later on down the road. But all of those traits make an animal look more friendly, and therefore people are more friendly to it, and therefore it can be more friendly to them. For example, one of my first dogs as an adult uh, had a small little underbite, so her teeth stuck out underneath, which is adorable mm-hmm. okay but on a small dog, but on bigger dogs when I was going to to the to the shelters, a lot of dogs who had over uh, underbites people thought they were aggressive because their teeth were showing
1: mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it 's
0: that, and people were less friendly to them, but they were friendly dogs that didn 't affect their personality. But I think mm-hmm. nature hasn't figured out that a way something looks. This is why you know we have mimicry in, in you know mm-hmm. the way, obviously the way something looks affects how other animals are going to interact with it. And I think they got mm-hmm. it figured out. Brian is what I'm saying. I think that they got it figured <laughs> out. We're going to figure that out later on, you know, in more concrete terms.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, in a, in a way, you're you're right because a lot of the hormones that uh, shape behavior, oxytocin, serotonin, mm-hmm. um, even dopamine, uh, testosterone. Um, They all uh, sort of feed back on each other in terms of shaping our behavior. Um, But all of those, um, especially oxytocin, serotonin, and testosterone, are uh, heavily implicated in shaping our bodies too. Mm. So if you change how behavior develops, you have to change those hormones. Uh, It means you're going to change – if you do it early in development, you're going to change what the body looks like. And so the association of more juvenile traits in your body – there's a, a natural link there with your behavior. Yeah. I, I No, I thought that was great. I also love that you
0: have a whole section about how dogs kind of hijack the oxy- oxytocin <laughs> cycle where, you know, you have a, a mother looks into the eyes of her child and that releases oxytocin in both, which develops a bond. Uh, which affects her development, but it affects how close they are to you. And dogs kind of do that as well. Cause when I look in my dog's eyes, it's adorable and I feel closer to my dog <laughs> and I think it's the same thing. But then I think to myself, well, is this dog like, is she manipulating me now? Is this, she jumped in on this cycle that's meant only for humans or is this natural? Brian, you tell me.
1: Yeah, no, I think uh, the hijacking of the eyes is it, it's one of these, I wasn't involved in the research, um, but I've cheerleaded as the discoveries have come in and, I mean, part of the reason I wasn't involved is I wouldn't have believed before this these discoveries. So it's different than what, what we were saying before, where it's like, of course, yeah, dogs are you know, gestures. That was my discovery. Mm. Like, we all know that. But I would have been very skeptical about, oh, that somehow if you look at a dog, we have more oxytocin and it makes us feel good. Oh, give me a break. But um, that's absolutely the case. And it's even worse than that. There's a beautiful set of uh, discoveries by a colleague of mine showing that dogs have a muscle. We actually don't even talk about it in the book, but uh, dogs have a muscle in their eye where they can pull back their uh, eyes in a way that wolves cannot. And by pulling their eyes back, it reveals, um, well, it helps them make that guilty eye look that we all adore and melt with. Um, and wolves can't pull that muscle back. And it ends up that by pulling that muscle back, it exposes more white sclera Uh. and white sclera is the signal we have, uh, for, you know, we're interacting with a human mind, uh, and we should be show empathy. And so if you add together the fact that they can pull back and show us more white sclera and it, that white sclera causes the release of oxytocin and it makes us perceive that we're interacting with a human mind, man, they have us hypnotized.
0: Yeah. That, (laughs) I mean, that's, That is crazy. I also love how communicative a dog is with their ears. I mean, it's they've got all these, and I don't know, maybe maybe wolves do the same thing. I don't know how wolves communicate with each other, but there's there's so many different movements, even with the dog's eyebrows. You know, they can raise their eyebrow like the rock. You know, I mean, it's it's just it's crazy how they can they really have a a lot of control over their facial features, which is just incredible.
1: Yeah. So so the the big one. So wolves can do most of those things with each other. I think the the one where they. can pull back the white sclera was the big surprise there's been very close work uh looking at the musculature of dog and wolf faces and and dogs really have an unusual anatomy for this specific set of muscles to manipulate us
0: well, <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't surprise me. I also find it very weird talking about the sclera. How chimpanzees they, it's they have a whole dark eye, so you can't see where they're looking. Uh, that that's a, a whole another thing. But uh, that was that was another. There are a lot of facts in this book that uh, I really are going to stick with me that I, I didn't think that I would carry with me for so long. There, that's odd to think about. You know. All right, now let, let's get into kind of the the thing that I thought. L- this is the swerve in the book that you almost gave away with your old t- with your old title. But that's this human self domestication hypothesis. Mm-hmm. What does this mean? You know, obviously, we're not talking about domestication in the sense, like in a social sense, where someone stays at home and they're, you know, they're good at being a homemaker or something like that. This is the belief that we went from being, well, you explain it. You can explain it better than I can.
1: Well, you earlier, you said, How do I define friendliness in animals? And I told you my definition. But uh, when you asked me this question about humans, um, You know, why would you talk about humans being friendlier? Well, it's always compared to what? And I think Mm -hmm. here it's really Mm -hmm. important to think about compared to what? Why do you say humans are friendly? There's so much, you know, everybody has to run into people who aren't friendly. Well, how many Neanderthals have you met? And so the argument argument is compared to Neanderthals and other extinct humans, we are lovely. Uh, on our <laughs> worst day. Um, and yeah. so so uh, one of the big findings in anthropology over the last 10, 15 years has been that we were not alone on this planet. Uh, Homo sapiens were not alone until the last 50,000 years. Uh, and all the other species uh, that we shared the planet with, as many as four to five, Um, maybe 10, some people have argued, Uh, they all had big brains, they all were cultural. Um, Some of them at least were certainly linguistic in ways that we would recognize. Those are all the normal explanations we give for how we're different from other animals and why we're here and so successful and able to talk on Skype about these things. Um, Well, how come most species that have those traits are extinct if it's so important to success? Uh, So maybe those aren't the traits that led to our our success. And it got us to start thinking, given the changes we saw and the impact selection for friendliness has on cooperative communication and the fact uh, in wolves uh, to dog or from bonobo to uh, chimpanzee to bonobo, sorry, um, and then just reflecting back on life's big changes, where uh, you have more successes when you have friendliness leading to new forms of cooperation, that us that got us thinking seriously that really late in human evolution we had selection for, a, a type of selection for friendliness that led to new forms of cooperation. It's why we're still here and why we're so successful.
0: No, I, I think that that's true. One of the things that I thought was odd is is. We go through, or we went through, at least this is the argument you lay out in the book, is we went through the domestication process much like dogs and these foxes that you talk about. I wanted to talk about those for a second because uh, those are crazy. But if we don't have time, you look them up online. These foxes are uh, they are so cool looking. I mean, they're like dogs. It's crazy. Uh, but you, know, you talk about how there were physical changes in, human, in Homo sapiens that that are very similar or at least parallel to the changes that were made in domestic in these domesticated foxes and in uh, dogs from from wolves to dogs as well. What were some of those changes that separated us that would add to the self-domestication hypothesis?
1: Yeah, so one of the h- hard things, if you're going to compare ourselves to Neanderthals, is um, and friendliness. I mean, you'd like to meet some Neanderthals, and we could test are they really less friendly. Um, so the good thing about self-domestication is we've already covered that when you select for friendliness, you also change the body, and we and you change the body in kind of predictable ways. So we were able to go in and make some tests looking at fossils of other uh, human species and even more archaic uh, individuals of our own species, so older. Uh, individuals um, that that we know were alive hundreds of thousands of years ago and more and compare them to more recent examples of our own mm. species mm. and look for changes in our bodies and our faces that might indicate that we became friendlier. And the short version is that when we look at our faces in particular, we have uh, the face of friendliness. We have really juvenile, uh, juvenileized faces relative to more older Uh, individuals of our own species and uh, and especially relative to other human species so we have much smaller brow ridges our uh, our faces are um, shorter um, and much like what we see in the uh, foxes that were selected for friendliness or even as we see dogs relative to wolves bonobos chimpanzees uh, there's some changes in our teeth as well but uh, there, there are other really exciting things too that that change in our species that we think are related to this you
0: mentioned something called domestication syndrome. Is that the process of those physical changes that you're talking about? Or is this something, cause you mentioned it with deer as well. And I wasn't exactly sure what that meant, what domestication syndrome was.
1: Yeah. So the idea of the domestication syndrome is back to this link between when you select for friendliness, you also change what the body looks like. Um, and so th- there's a, a, a set of, Predictable things that tend to change when you select for friendliness beyond your behavior, and that's the syndrome. Oh, oh, okay. The set of things. Okay. Okay. So that's that's what we went and looked for. Was we didn't look for friendly behavior in extinct humans and extinct Neanderthals. We went and looked for that syndrome that would be the signature of a change in behavior. Okay, I wasn't sure
0: if the syndrome was. Uh, the way it was kind of the context of it in the book made it seem like there were problems maybe like a jaw that didn't fit or like I so you're just saying that's a set of traits that I got it okay that makes perfect sense Uh, now let's talk about the you know we talked about friendliness so let's let's end it on non-friendliness because this was kind I got to admit here this is The last couple chapters of the book, it almost becomes a political analysis of human beings throughout history, which was weird because it it goes from biology. Then there's the swerve into, hey, humans are domesticated. And then it's like, by the way, here's how our politics has been shaped by our beliefs because of this biology, which which I just want to warn people out there. Be ready for it because it's something a lot. But there's a lot of interesting things there about dehumanization. Which is the extreme form of essentially a byproduct of friendliness, which is... The intra-group stranger, where we have our groups and we, you know, we uh, kind of distribute ourselves into groups by myriad ways that are almost unpredictable in a way. I would never have believed how how loyal people are to a sports team as much as I love sports. You know, I live in LA. Someone almost got beaten to death over their loyalty to a sports team. That's crazy to me. But that is exactly what we're talking about. Which is, I'm in this group. And human beings who identify someone as being outside of their group, then all of the nice friendly things that we evolved that helped us survive are out the window immediately, and now you're the enemy and you must die. How does that work from a biological standpoint?
1: Yeah, so uh, you 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 if you hear the title survival of friendliness, I'm sure maybe people are like, Oh, come on. Like, but what happens is in this analogy analysis, sorry, is that we realize our species is the friendliest species of human to ever evolve. And we really, literally, our brains are built for friendliness. But because they're built for friendliness and we have these special mechanisms to allow us to cooperate in new ways, they also can turn off to protect us. Uh, and so uh, that's really the the underlying analysis here uh, from a biological perspective. And so we go deep into the details of what that means and how it works, but fundamentally... When we feel that our group is threatened, uh, especially by another group, uh, we can turn off our friendliness and we don't even see those other people as humans. Uh, We can treat them as if they were uh, using psychology we would use with a doorknob or a chair or whatever. And so that then allows this super friendly species to be the cruelest species on the planet when the mechanisms that make us built for friendliness shut down. Well, it is to me that was it's the craziest part of the book. I probably said
0: that about six times in this interview, but there was a lot in this book that really changed how I viewed the world and just that whole concept of we are the friendliest to our human beings. You could essentially say that we humans are the friendliest. And what's also funny is we are living in the most, the least violent times in human homo sapien modern history. And we are the least violent of the five or so similar hominids, uh, hominids of early days. And we're still look at what's going on. You know, like we still, we still have wars, you know, all that. But what's interesting is, is just how we are the friendliest to humans. But as soon as we stop seeing other people as humans, which is surprisingly easy, was what I learned from your book, once we dehumanize someone and make them not human, then they are, then we are anything, we are cruel and mean and, and just unconsciously, I mean, we're terrible. I mean, I don't even know words to describe how horrible we can be towards our fellow humans when we stop seeing them as humans.
1: Yeah, so uh, I think that's the big takeaway is that we're all built with this ability to be super friendly or to dehumanize. Um, And the question is, how then do we take that knowledge and have a friendlier future? And we know just like uh, when you're trying to deal with coronavirus, you know, you want to take medicine and you want to have a vaccine or therapies that actually fight the virus. You don't want to take snake oil. Uh, that might hurt you. And it's the exact same thing when you have social problems uh, between different groups. You want to take uh, you want to immunize using something that works. And so uh, it it seems like a funny twist in the book that we go from, you know, hey, we're celebrating dogs teaching us about ourselves, and oh, what? we're domesticated too. Wait, whoa, why are we doing yeah. politics all of a sudden? Yeah. Yeah. But it's because uh, if you want to uh, deal with human nature, and you want to get the best out of it and and have a friendlier future, then we have to correctly diagnose how we're built and then how to immunize against the worst of our human nature. And we know what it is. Once you do this analysis, uh, you know what it is. It, and there's wonderful evidence that cross-group friendship, it's when you have friends across uh, groups that view themselves as uh, different and potentially threatening to one another, those Friendships prevent the worst forms of dehumanization because they act as a bridge and they prevent people from seeing each other as uh, violent threats. Uh, because, hey, I know that you guys are friends and uh, I can't dehumanize you because I know that that guy's friends with you and I know you would shake me out of my dehumanize- dehumanizing, you know, uh, stupefaction uh, if I started to think that. And there's nice evidence that that's exactly what happens when we have friends across groups. It doesn't matter what kind of group it is um, that's having a conflict, That that's the key that immunizes against the worst of human nature.
0: No, I, I agree with you completely. And I, and I think that that's, those, that's the way we should be going. And I hope your book kind of facilitates that for future. But one of the things I do have to say is it is strange uh, in modern times without being specific how you can be friends with someone or someone you've known a long time And how through a couple of words or or someone else has a different thought, how how I've seen it, maybe you and I don't do that, uh, but maybe how you can see someone is instantly dehumanizes them by, you know, as soon as you put them in another group, like, I believe this thing, you believe that, you're now in the outer group, and now I don't like you anymore. And it is to me, it, it, that is the scary part because that what you just said should make sense. But when you see longtime friends who can fall out over a, uh, over a philosophical belief, which is happening a lot, you know, thank you, Facebook. Uh, I, I think, you know, I, I think that's really the scary part that you can actually break this down and you can trigger that dehumanizing element in human beings so quickly, so effectively and so efficiently. That is really the scary part, I think, is about this whole thing.
1: Yeah. No, we're built for friendliness, but it comes with a cost. And uh, I think I think, uh, you know, cross group friendships gets us a long way. But you're right. There's sort of a balkanization of uh, ideologies and it's become fashionable to quickly. Uh, you know, cut people off if they disagree with you in any way uh, and don't conform to some, you know, signal of your group. Um, I mean, that's been that's been going on for you know, hundreds of thousands of years in humans. Um, yeah. So the question is, uh, how do we do better? And I think we know the answer and we have to decide we want to do it. And uh, I am I, I, hopeful.
0: Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think it goes back to the dogs. You know, I saw a bumper sticker that said, wag more, bark less. As silly as that sounds, I feel like that is the key to the future. Uh, So, how can people? We've talked about this book a lot. It's, you know, for a scientific book, it's got a lot of twists and turns and plot twists. So, how can people find it? if they want to read it should they should read it by the way it should be required reading
1: thanks so much uh it's on sale anywhere books are on sale so you can find it at your independent bookstore or you know if you want to go to one of the giants and uh you know feed their treasure chest you can go to amazon too uh, you know, I, I did I could just
0: detect a small hint that you have a preference on where people would find <laughs> want to find their book. Uh, <laughs> just uh, I don't just know, pick I kind of like the guy myself. <laughs> yeah, subtly pick that up. Well, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you? Do you have, are you on social media? What do you do?
1: Uh, I'm on I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm a Twitter person, so I'm bhair at uh, bhairdogguy, and uh, I'm also uh, Brianhair.net. I like that hairnet. That's <laughs> that's easy to remember. Brian. It's hair like right a net. bunch oh. rabbit, though. It's a bunny. Right, rabbit, right, right. Uh, <laughs> <on> your head. <laughs> right, right.
0: No, that's fair. That's fair. Well, again, as I said, Brian, this is a, a fantastic book. I mean, just eye opening, and I hope it does change the course of human history. But thank you so much for taking so much time out for me today. This was great fun. Thanks. Thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns Introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E. A. Barrientos with music and sound design, written and performed by E. A. Barrientos. If you like this show, you got to subscribe. You can subscribe on all the major podcasting platforms Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and of course, Spotify. If you are not already on those platforms, I'll make it easy for you. Go to the Fascinating Nouns website, fascinatingnouns.com. You can find links to subscribe on that page as well as links to other episodes, even some articles on previous episodes. we got videos and pictures and all sorts of supplemental material right there on the website. It is one heck of a resource. And, of course, you can follow the show on social media. On the website, you will find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages, all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. And if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.